Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. On today's show, we continue our conversation with Dr. Karen Oberg, professor of astronomy at Harvard University and head of the Oberg Astrochemistry Group. A member of the board of directors of the Society of Catholic Scientists, Dr. Oberg has been a featured presenter at our own institute's annual Science and Religion Summer Seminar, where we bring together teachers of science with teachers of theology from Catholic high schools across the country. In the same spirit as that seminar, we are running a short series here on Church Life Today to re-examine the perceived conflict between science and religion. In our last episode, Dr. Oberg shared with us some of the fruits of her research, especially in relation to exoplanets and the chemical composition and physical requirements of what we would deem habitable planets. She spoke to us as a scientist, and if you joined us last time, you also experience what a skilled and generous teacher she is, making complex ideas accessible for non-experts like me. Today, as we continue our conversation, we focus a bit more on her journey as a person of faith, one who is a practicing Catholic, not in spite of or removed from her work as one of the world's leading scientists, but indeed as ultimately integrated with her professional life. Dr. Oberg, welcome back. It is really great to be back. Thank you. Last time you were with us, we had a really engaging conversation um, about astronomy, about your work as an astrochemist, about exoplanets, uh, planets that are orbiting other stars other than our sun, the question about habitable planets, and even the question about the possibility of life on other planets. And in the course of our conversation, you mentioned that you were a scientist, in fact, before you were Catholic. So I'd love to start our conversation today by uh, asking you, if you don't mind, to fill us in a little bit of that story. We can go from uh, deep space into uh, your own life, if you don't mind. I'd be happy to. Great. Uh, so the, the background of the story is that I'm from Sweden, and like most uh, Swedes, I was raised as a secular Lutheran. So I was baptized in the Swedish Lutheran Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was confirmed in the Swedish Lutheran Church, but not much more than that in terms of religious formation. Uh, so when I started thinking about God more seriously as a teenager, as I think mentioned last time, I think I've always had this curiosity and sort of wonder of the word and obsession with truth. So once I started thinking about it, it made less and less sense to me, the sort of the little sort of childhood formation that mm. I ha- had had. And I became an agnostic, I would say. I was never an atheist, and I kept being a bothered uh, agnostic uh, because of two convictions that I could not let go of. Uh, one was the uh, moral realism, that uh, there are moral truths, uh, and they're not uh, just social conventions or things that are convenient, but they are, they are real. There are things that are really evil and things that are really good. And the second was the conviction that I am, at least in s- some sense, self-directing, that mm-hmm. I have a free will and that it matters uh, what I chose to do with, with that will, what I, choose to, what I choose to do. So those things uh, were always accompanying me as I was in this sort of 10-year period of agnosticism. Uh, 
When I uh, was going to go to college, I decided I wanted to come to the, to the U.S. And I went to Caltech uh, for college. And there I encountered, uh, for the first time, uh, a lot of Christians hmm. who were clearly very smart. They were you know, science students. And uh, I was not converted by them. There's not not that easy of a path that God had in mind. <laughs> but I, I think uh, I needed to see them before I was ready that for a conversion. That existed. Uh-huh. And I think they saw more seeds than they probably will ever know. Oh. And uh, so I guess this is my thank you note to them uh, for that. Uh, but I, I went through college uh, without uh, becoming a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, though my last year, I started wearing my confirmation cross again, though more as a challenge, I think, than as a, any, any symbol of, of faith or, or What do you conviction. mean by challenge? How was it a challenge? I think I started to, th- to uh, tell myself or like even want to signal to others that I was a Christian, even though I really wasn't, and mm. sort of trying out the ground in mm. some sense. Uh, I think the way that I approach faith and science is not that different. That you sort of have to first make the leap and um, sort of jump into an idea to really try it out. Mm. You cannot fully explore it uh, sort of staying far, far away. You have to, in some sense, suspend disbelief and then see how far an idea takes you. And I think I was doing something similar. I mean, this is all sort of reconstruction after, after the fact. <laughs> I really don't know exactly why I put on this cross, but I did. There's no explanation in your <laughs> There's journals no explanation. at that time. Yeah, right. Uh, but that led to you know, interesting conversations, to some books. And one of the most important books that I've picked up on a recommendation uh, was a book by, by C.S. Lewis, uh, The Abolition on Man. Now, this is not really a Christian apologetics book. It's more of a metaphysics mm-hmm. uh, one. But it's put in words very eloquently the two concerns that I just uh, told you about, this idea of a moral realism and then of free will. I mean, he raises pretty much exactly the same, but does it with his wonderful, eloquent ways that right. when you read it, you're like, oh, that's what I thought all along. <laughs> I just didn't know. Uh, so reading those... Um, made me convicted that there was something there to continue. Um, I don't know why I next decided to read Mere Christianity, but mm-hmm. I did, uh, which is a dangerous book to read if you want to stay agnostic. I think it oh. forces you to choose. Uh, and about one hour into that book, it was very clear to me which choice was the rational one, and it was to accept God's existence as real and as revealed through Jesus Christ, and uh, that the basic tenets of Christian faith uh, was real. Uh, so being, I said, a rational uh, person, I then Googled nearby English-speaking churches because <laughs> I was then in grad school in, in, in the Netherlands, and I found the Anglican Church in The Hague where oh. I was a parishioner for the next three and a half years. So that was the first sort of conversion was from agnosticism to some sort of mere Christianity. Uh-huh. And it was following through in a sort of rational way, as you're saying, that it, it seems like at some point it would have, you're saying it would have been unreasonable not to be persuaded. Absolutely. Mm. So I think uh, God is very good and he chose uh, a beautiful converse, conversion uh, 
adventure for me that fitted my personality and mind and heart very well. So I got to uh, go through it using sort of the tools and the gifts uh, that I that I have and got to be very, um, uh, see, like got to partake in it. Uh, I talked about it in the last episode how I love how he made the cosmos uh, something self-creating or like mm. it, and uh, I think there's some analogy there in that he lets us partake in our own salvation and our own journey uh, towards him in a way that fits us. There's does not feel like it's imposed from the outside. And this was definitely one of those uh, moments. We're talking today with Dr. Karen Oberg, professor of astronomy at Harvard University. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. So you were not overruled by God. You were empowered by God in some way. In Abs- this absolutely. I said he uh, in in no way did it ever feel like something that was forced from the outside. It was just revealed that this was this was rational. Hmm. And uh, if I wanted an honest way to follow through where truth was leading me, then that was where I had had to go. Uh, so, but the journey doesn't stop there. So that, don't, that only took me to mere Christianity. Hague, right? That's where you were. Uh, where I was very happy, uh-huh. by the way. Uh, but uh, about a year later, uh, someone else uh, brought uh, to my attention orthodoxy. Okay, so by, C.S. By, Lewis uh, took you as far as he could, and then you were passed along. And to then G.K. he Chesterton. he passed me passed me along to to Chesterton and an orthodoxy. Uh-huh. And I read that book, and it was much more quieter. Uh, I would say moment of conversion of more of realization mm. uh, while I mean I talked about my conversion to Christianity as a very sort of rational calm experience it was not a calm experience it's quite unsettling <laughs> to in the course of an hour like totally change your course of your life and your beliefs and it was a very emotional day but <laughs> reading orthodoxy that was just a pure joy oh. uh, it was a realization that this is this is what I believe, and eventually, probably, maybe, where I belong. Mm. There were quite some cultural obstacles in my way. I didn't know any Catholics uh, at the time. Um, but it set me on, on the trajectory towards the Catholic Church. And after another four years or so of slowly moving in that direction, of trying, to gr- trying out the ground, telling people I would probably convert one day, I started RCIA, and in 2012, I was received into full communion with the church. Oh, beautiful. Where were you then? Where were you living? So by then, I had moved back to the U.S., and I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Excellent. So 2012, you came into communion with the Catholic Church. That's right. Well, it's a little late, but still, welcome. (laughs) Thank you. It's good (laughs) to have you here. Um, Just thinking back to those days at Caltech, and you said uh, being surrounded by other Christians who didn't even— recognize what they were offering to you. Um, but you have some reason to be grateful just for what was it? Their words, their witness? Um, what was it about those, those I th- students? I think, they're, I think their very existence. Uh, I don't remember anything specific they mm-hmm. said or what they, they showed. I, I remember one of them was Catholic and went to Mass every Sunday and for me, it was every time a little bit wistful that there was something that I had some longing for. I, I read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings when I was eight, and I think I've been predisposed to the Catholic Church ever <laughs> since. And 
I mean, just seeing that and uh-huh. seeing someone my age going through those motions, which I had only seen, I think, in movies uh-huh. before, I think that started um, a certain longing in my heart that then took quite some time to, to be fulfilled. But it's, I think it awakened that longing mm-hmm. uh, more than anything else, just seeing them uh, going, uh, uh, going, going to mass, uh, taking time out of their lives and just in a very sort of um, non-dramatic way. It was just something they did. It was settled in yeah. some sort of way. It's really interesting because I, I happen to talk to a lot of parents, of especially teenagers. Um, their students are going off to college, and there's always the concern, and understandably, that my child will, will move away from their faith, will lose their faith. And it was precisely in this time when you went away to college, not just away, uh, across the sea to college, right, from Sweden to Southern California. Um, and it was the influence, the, the subtle witness, as you're saying, of others that actually planted a seed that developed much later, um, not right then. That's right. That's, really that's definitely right. Thing. Now, all of this time, you're continuing to study science, um, going through graduate school, uh, that's earning right. your, your doctorate. Um, what did this mean for you as a as a burgeoning scientist? I think to start with, it was not obvious to me what it meant at all. I knew it was important from the beginning to be open about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, convert zeal or something. But I started <laughs> uh, wearing a more visible cross. And once I converted to Catholicism, a crucifix, um, mm-hmm. showing that symbol of loyalty to me was important. I think mainly because I do operate in a very secular environment where the presumption is that you're not religious, that you're not Catholic. And I think what I always felt was that if I didn't show some symbol of my loyalty to God and to his church, um, I was sort of consenting to being put in the box uh, of a non-believer. And that to me felt like lying. Hmm. And as I think you've already mentioned a few times, truth is... uh, an obsession of mine and probably the, the, my primary It's a good virtue. addiction to have of, of all of them. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, so for me to be able to project who I am and not be put in a box that was untrue mm. to who I was was very important to be able to do that openly uh, in the scientific community. Mm-hmm. And I have never run into any problems whatsoever. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, nothing. Uh, on the contrary, a lot of curious conversations, um, a lot of support from my colleagues in living out my faith and mentoring students uh, who are uh, Catholic or of other religious faiths, which mm-hmm. I do uh, at, at Harvard. And yeah, it's, uh, it's just been a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing. Yeah. So you did not uh, start out, you spent some time at Harvard, as I understand, and then went elsewhere and then came back. What was what was part of that decision? Uh, yeah, that's that's right. So the typical academic trajectory, uh, at least in the in the natural in the physical sciences uh-huh. is that after graduate school, after earning your doctorate, you do a postdoctoral fellowship for a few years. Mm-hmm. So I did that at Harvard for three years uh, in astronomy. And then I got my first faculty position at the University of Virginia. Oh, beautiful. Where I met and fell in love with the Dominican order. I've uh, been a groupie ever since. Of the Dominicans. Of yes. the Dominicans. Okay. So I, I work some with them on these questions of science and religion as well. Okay. Uh, and then I was, and I was in the chemistry department there. And then I was offered uh, a faculty position at Harvard in the astronomy department. And 
they made me an offer I could not refuse. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I moved I moved back there in 2013. Yes, very good, very good. Um, what are the students like that you're teaching at Harvard now? Are you? I imagine you're working quite a lot with graduate students. Are you also teaching undergraduates? That's right. So, uh, but half the courses I teach are for undergraduates and, okay. and half at the graduate level. Okay. What are their questions? Um, not just about science, but are, I imagine, um, especially with the undergraduates and probably with the graduate students too. It's also there's a good deal of mentoring in, in college teaching. What are you seeing in students uh, today who are going? going off to a place like Harvard? I would say most of them uh, do not ask questions that are of this sort of religious, theological, or metaphysical kind. Um, I don't know if they are interested or uninterested. It might just be that they don't think they can ask those kind of questions of a, sort of a professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I said I do have quite a few students that are um, Christians that are Catholic, many of them, that have searched me out one way or another. Is that right? And uh, many of them either saw my crucifix or I also try to announce at the end of a semester when I teach an undergraduate course that I'm very happy to to talk to them about science and religion uh, questions. Uh, so it's mostly... so, And they um, they do have specific concerns. Many of them are concerned about that there might be penalties if they live out their faith. Uh, I try to uh, mentor them both on that it doesn't have to be that way, but also it's okay to be prudent when you're mm-hmm. at certain stages in your career and you should not feel guilty about that. Uh, but they also have more basic concerns on, about how to live. They want to live out their faith. And at the same time, they don't want to offend people or they don't want to you know, risk their career. and doing both. I mean, it's not trivial when you are in a predominantly secular place and you mm-hmm. want to be respectful uh, and at the same time be true to, to who you are. So many of the conversations are about that, how to build up sort of life where you can you can live at your faith but still have that career in the sciences or in other disciplines that you feel called to. Very good. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Dr. Dr. Karen Oberg, professor of astronomy at Harvard University. And you're also a board member of the Society of Catholic Scientists. So on this point that we were just talking about, the mentoring of uh, younger scientists, uh, students of science, um, this organization that is quite new, only a couple of years old, the Society of Catholic Scientists, um, is a professional national organization, international organization that invites uh, Catholic scientists uh, to really kind of claim that and to have uh, an association with other Catholic scientists where they can uh, think about some of their scientific work and also um, a Catholic worldview together. Could you tell us a little bit about your interest in that society and your participation in it? You're absolutely right in how you describe it. For me, though, the number one reason why I'm excited is to help younger people, mm-hmm. uh, both students who are Catholic uh, students who are in the sciences, uh, to give them access to mentoring from a more senior Catholic scientist who know in their specific discipline how to uh, how to how to uh, get through some of the questions we just talked about, how to live out your faith, yeah. but also be successful uh, in their field, but and also being a witness to to younger. Uh, younger people, I I think it's clear that uh, science or uh, sort of perceived scientific messages can be a stumbling block for mm. young people when they are 
trying to claim their faith as their own when they're getting to the point where they can no longer just rely on their families or their community's faith, but they need to claim it for their own. And then they have what they see as a competing scientific narrative. And I think then it can be a real stumbling block. And I think uh, even if we can't talk to every one of them, for them just to see that there are senior Catholic scientists now today who seem to not find that to be a problem, I think <laughs> is really important. So so that is, that is the main reasons that I'm, I'm so excited about it. Seems like it opens up their imaginations to see what is possible. So part of the problem there is not even having the images or the models to look to, to see the possibilities here. Um, and that leads me to, to another thought that I've had. So for at least the last few years, you've worked with us here at Notre Dame in our Science and Religion Seminar through the McGrath Institute yep. for Church Life, where we bring together uh, teachers of both scientific disciplines, but also theology teachers from Catholic high schools together in the same room uh, for the same seminar over the course of a week and help to educate them together to develop new pedagogical strategies. Uh, what has been your interest in working with those high school teachers um, in what to teach them and how to help them think and to present their material at the high school level. Yeah, and no, I've been very happy to be the, be part of this. Seems like a very efficient way. I mean, again, I'm very <laughs> rational, so uh, efficient way to communicate with a lot of students that um, we exist as Catholic scientists and that there are those among us who really think about how to lead a fully integrated life where when we are scientists, we don't stop being Catholic mm -hmm. and when we go to mass, we don't stop being scientists, that it really is possible to hold both in your mind at the same at the same time. So what I like talking to the teachers about is really using uh, some of the topics we have covered when it comes to exoplanets, thinking about God as a creator, uh, to origins of life, to life elsewhere. And first of all, just tell them what the science is, since I think there are some misrepresentations there, mm -hmm. but then how they touch upon theological questions and that they don't need to be anxious to, to talk about those theological questions. Um, there is, uh, God is truth. He is not going to trick us mm -hmm. in showing us a scientific truth that's going to threaten our relationship with him. I mean, I just... That would go so against everything we know about him and the church teaches. So I think a lot of it is giving them the tools, uh, the science, the theological questions that it opens up to think about so they can bring that into the classroom with confidence, uh, mm -hmm. with knowing that they have behind them you know, scientific professionals who are Catholic, who have thought about the same. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of the problem is that it seems, if you look at the media, like scientists have sort of proven religion wrong. And they clearly haven't. I mean, I would say it is impossible because there are different, dis different disciplines, what science can do, what religion mm -hmm. uh, claims to speak about. But I think that idea is there. So even just being able to say that, you know, this is what some Catholic scientists are thinking about right now, and these are some theological uh, questions that it brings to the forefront. Let's let's talk about what the incarnation means now when we're thinking about, you know, that there might be extraterrestrials out there. Mm. So that's what I'm hoping that they'll bring with them. Very interesting. What do you think the theologians and theology teachers are gaining from the science teachers? Well, what I what I hope they uh, they see is that they can also bring 
the the same thing with them that um, I don't know how it is in Catholic high schools in the U.S., but uh-huh. if it's anything like a secular high school in Sweden, it is not always that easy to get students to care about metaphysics or the deep questions, uh-huh. even though they oh, should. Oh, it's the exact same in the U.S. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. Uh, so being able to start a conversation about something like the incarnation with extraterrestrials, uh-huh. I imagine could be a useful tool to to get the students excited and sort of see it anew and in a fresh way and just how strange and weird it is that God would become uh, a human being. Uh-huh. Uh, so that would be my hope. That's, that's what they take with them. Beautiful. Well, somehow it's happened again. This is our second time talking and the time flies when we get into conversation. Thank you so much again, Dr. Karen Oberg, for being with us here today. My pleasure. And thanks again to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. <laughs>